You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house here at CRTV, powered by Westwood One, on Tuesday, January 30th. And yes, we're about to put another month in the can, the first month of 2018, already done, already squandered. The GOP controls the trifecta of government, and yet they've spent the first month of this year following up from the momentum of the tax cuts last year, buoyed by the stock market surge, the economic news, they followed it up doing absolutely nothing but promoting the messaging of the other side on immigration. It's, it's still, I, I'm telling you, I still find it unbelievable that they've not conducted a vote on making the tax cuts permanent. I hope to hear that from the president tonight in the State of the Union address. I mean, that, that's a no-brainer point. You should stare down the Democrats, make that point. Um, obviously, we'll be talking about the State of the Union on the other side of it later this week, you know, because I, I can't stand the pregame show. I just can't stand that. Let's just see what the heck he says, and let's actually um, comment comment on it, you know, because otherwise this is just so annoying. Oh, I, I think he should say this. He should say that. Well, let's just see what he says. I also think State of the Union addresses are, are pathetic and dumb. Um, I mean, this is no rip on Trump. This is just all of them since the stupid Woodward Wilson uh, re reincarnated this entire invention of having this, you know, parliament parliament style King of Thrones English game of, you know, yay and nay and shouting and whatever they do in their parliament. Uh, you know, obviously, Thomas Jefferson had the right idea by just sending submitting a written memo to Congress. Here's the State of the Union. Now, some of it had to do with the fact that unlike his buddy Madison, he was a pretty lousy public speaker. He was the writer. You know, Jeff- Jefferson was the writer. Madison was the speaker. So he didn't really revel the <laughs> opportunity to get up in front of a joint session of Congress. But nonetheless, he had the right idea. And in fact, they did this all the way till 1913 when Wilson, the showboating boy, had to uh, bring back this ridiculous practice. And you know, it's just dumb because what Congress needs, what the American people need, there should be a memo of, and I think mainly focused really on foreign policy because you know domestic policy, we kind of know exactly where things stand nowadays. We have ways of monitoring everything that maybe back in the day when Congress, you know, you didn't have the internet and Congress was uh, really part-time, they often didn't know what was going on. Everyone knows what's going on every second now. But in foreign policy, I think it's more apt. What are we doing in Afghanistan? What is your input? What's the investment? What's the risk? What's the return? What's the end game? What are you doing in Iraq? What's the end game in Syria? I'd love to know that. But sadly, these are things we won't hear. And I, I will hopefully get to this a little later. Also, I want to get to the fact that what did the Senate spend time passing a pro-life bill? Now, that might sound like a good thing. I'm going to give you six reasons why it's a bad thing. I have an article coming out soon on 
summarizing those points as well. But before we get to that, I just want to sum up what we talked about last time. And I know you heard, you know, heard heard me talking about this for a full hour. But this notion that Trump somehow had this brilliant strategy, brilliant, brilliant strategy on immigration by adopting the parlance, assumptions, policies, and talking points on the other side, and even expanding amnesty to a broader open-ended category rather than just the people that got the stupid DACA documents. And all the things we're going to discuss today is going to be, they're going to be wrapped around this thesis for today. We usually try to give a thesis for for each recording here. And today's broadcast is going to be Trump and Republicans and the need for consistency. I I know you're going to laugh at me. Well, duh. I mean, they're never going to have that. That's not Trump's thing. But that's the problem because he stumbles across good talking points, good intuition, good policies. And then he'll just, he'll just go in the opposite direction on you and he just won't stay on message. Stay with it. Be relentless. Stay consistent. And that's how you'll win. But, you know, it's too much to ask for. So anyway, you know, clearly Trump is very sensitive to conservative criticism, which is the point. We need him to be sensitive. And it's a good thing he's sensitive to it. I give him credit for it. But that's why we need to raise our voices rather than apologize for impending betrayals because you know he goes and tweets Sunday morning. This is his first reaction to the reaction of this thing. And he said, well, you know, I did this to show how radical the Democrats are. And, and that's really what the apologists were saying. Well, this is a brilliant strategy for dimensional chess because it shows that even if he's willing to give them more than the initial request – they still so badly want open borders, they will not agree to any security or limitations on chain migration because, you know, e- even if they're going to get amnesty, they, they, that, that's how radical they are. Well, duh, we kind of knew that already. I mean, there's nothing to expose. If that were true, you would walk away from it. I never doubted that that you could kind of I, – I never doubted the fact that as the plan was written, as much as we didn't like it, it was still too much for the Democrats and that they'd reject it. But then if that really is the strategy, you should walk away from it. Now we should say, you know what? We offered it. Now we're done. Now you lost your window for amnesty, and now we're only going to talk about enforcement. Done. I'm ending DACA. Done. No, no more renewals. But he's not doing that. He won't stop talking about it. And, and look, I don't want to prejudge what he says at the State of the Union address. We're going to obviously talk about it tomorrow or, th- or, or Thursday, and until now, most of his primetime speeches have been pretty good on this issue. So I don't want to address some of the rumors of what he may or may not say at this point. But until now, he really hasn't gone in that direction, and he won't stop talking about the need for DACA. And that's going to undermine his leverage. And Trump needs to recognize that he has an amazing opportunity here to demoralize the other side. You know, the open border Republicans think that, oh my gosh, we have to do amnesty because somehow we're going to get the more Hispanic votes and take away from their side if we somehow out-amnesty the left. And if we don't pass it, oh my gosh, we're going to get punished. And really, they don't recognize the opposite is true. First of all, most voters don't want it. Most voters want 
our agenda. So among the non-Hispanic voters, you're going to gain, and there's, you know, Hispanic voters only about 10%. So that is certainly a benefit. But even among the Hispanic vote, what they don't realize is the opposite is true. You have the power, certainly the power to block amnesty. You know, they're in the majority. Even if you say they're going to dogmatically keep the filibuster in every certain, every iteration of it, fine. But they certainly have the power to block. So they have the power to demoralize the other side because it's the opposite. If if they block if they vote for amnesty, you're gonna have a massive gratitude vote for the Democrats. They're not gonna reward Republicans for voting for amnesty. Are you kidding me? No one believes that. But conversely, if you actually block it, not only do you block the gratitude, but it's the opposite. They're demoralized, and they take it out on the Democrats. To this day, they're still protesting outside of Schumer's office or outside of his home in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York, because in their mind, he caved on the shutdown. Again, there's the need for consistency. Strike while the iron's hot. Take the victories and the momentum you have and double down on your messaging. Now is the time to make the tax cuts permanent. Now is the time to end amnesty and say, look, I, I gave you everything. I gave you more than my base wanted, and you, you didn't take it. We're done with this now. That's what they need to talk about. Unfortunately, too much of the conservative media is just distracting with nonsense. And, and they're not focusing enough on the plays we should be making on immigration. It's very, very concerning. Very concerning. Um, before we move on to some other issues, I just want to mention a couple more points on immigration. And by the way, I'm just sorry for the sniffling here and scratchy voice. It's a little bit tough. I, I actually wanted to get a member of the Freedom Caucus or one of the conservative members on to talk about some of this stuff today uh, just to give my voice a break as well and for you to hear another perspective. But um you know, they're all traveling this morning. A lot of them are traveling back to D.C. So we'll have, we'll have to save that. But, yeah, I still do want to bring on more more voices in addition to just hearing from me. But anyway, a couple more things on immigration. So I have coming out, and actually it, it's out already. Let me link to this in show notes. I have a report on the, the, the important facts and context that's missing from the immigration debate. And what I did is, you know, following Trump making these remarks on the asshole countries and uh, the media going nuts and this, oh, everyone's great, all countries are equal. And I demonstrate, I go through the top 30 countries of origin of our immigration system, meaning what are the top countries from which we take our immigrants? And I, I list the top 30, and the top 30 countries account for 76% of our immigration pool. And really the top, you know, 15 or 20 account for the majority. And almost all of them are third world countries, very poor. The immigrants are very poor from there. They're on welfare. They don't speak English well, with a couple of exceptions. And so the first chart, I just have the sheer numbers. And the second chart, I have almost like a stock ticker. It's um really good job from our graphics buddy, Mark Gorman here at CRTV. And he put out, he made this chart for me where we juxtapose the annual poverty level 
and use of means-tested programs as compared to native-born Americans. And the point is that you want immigrants that are going to be better off than the average native-born American. Because again, everyone wants to come here. We have endless demand for immigration. They want to come here. I mean, endless supply. So only pick the best and brightest. And I list the three, what I think are three important characteristics. Speaks English well, use of means-tested programs, and the percentage of those who are at or near the poverty level. And you'll see that, A, in terms of the sheer numbers, Mexico dominates our system. 174,000 green cards were issued to Mexican nationals last year. So these aren't just, um, not, not just illegal immigration, but they dominate our legal immigration system, which, by the way, lays waste to this entire notion that, oh, well, of course we have illegal immigration because we don't have enough legal immigrants. Well, it's precisely from the countries where we have the most illegal immigration, where we have the most generous legal immigration system. I mean, Mexico has more than twice as many green cards than the next country, which is China and then Cuba. Um, And why? And, And this has been going on for every year for 40 years. Where is it written in in the Constitution or the Bible that Mexico should dominate our um, our, our green cards? It, it just makes no sense. Now, obviously, they're a neighboring country. You know, you're going to have some immigration from there, but we have 16 times as much immigration from Mexico as we have from Canada. And anyway, you know, my point here is numbers matter. A sense of proportion matters. Context matters. You can't just speak as Thomas Sowell. And by the way, it was an honor that Thomas Sowell, I quoted him here and he actually retweeted my article. Um, he's one of my, you know, one of my real heroes, great thinker. And, he, you know, he, he always made fun of the people that talked about abstract immigrants, Im- immigration, the abstract. Well, you got to look at the specifics. Well, yeah, you could have people from the third world that it works out if you don't have a welfare state and you take in a small numbers. But if you do have a welfare state and you take in large numbers from impoverished countries that don't speak English well, don't learn English well, don't assimilate well, um, don't have upward mobility. Well, yeah, I mean, it's not going to work out for us. And this is the system of chain migration that we have. We've allowed these countries to monopolize our system. And then once they monopolize them 20 years ago, it's on autopilot from chain migration. So, you know, you look here at the numbers and pretty much third world countries dominate. I mean, Latin America accounted for 50% of all immigrants since 1965, 29% from Mexico alone. How is that fair? And then also, you know, again, everyone's talking about Trump's comments. Oh, he wants Europeans, racist, this and that. But again, it's a balance. It's how much you say, well, okay, maybe not everyone has to be from Europe. Maybe it's half and half. Or, But it's almost none of it's from there. Not a single European or Western-style country is among the top 20 sending countries. Canada is 25 and the UK is 26. No other Western country even registers in the top 30, maybe even top 40. Um, another thing, seven Islamic countries are near the top. Um, a lot of them are on the moratorium list, but they're near the top, and this is a big problem. And and their numbers are going up every year. You know, you got Pakistan, Iraq, Bangladesh, um, Iran, Yemen, Afghanistan, and Egypt. I mean, this is a very big problem. 
So, so there's that. And this is all coming from, from chain migration. This has nothing to do with merit. And you look, you look at the top, the top four. I mean, what's interesting is, what's interesting is, if you look at these three measures of poverty, means testing programs, and speaks English well, India and the Philippines are the only countries that, that, you know, from where we have a lot of immigration, where they score well, where they actually have below, you know, for example, 30.8% of Americans are at or near poverty, and that's defined by 200% of the poverty rate. So I'm not just including poverty, I'm including near poverty. Um, and I got this, all this data from Stephen Camerata, the inimitable statistician at Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, and the reason why I include that is because, again, we don't just want people who aren't below poverty. You want them, you know, a little buffer zone there. You want people that are productive. And the the rate of 200% of poverty level or below is 30.8% among native-born Americans. So for India, um, Indian immigrants, it's only 16.1. Philippines is 18.2. Um, and aside from South Korea, which roughly tracks with the native rate, um, Every other country is below or well below, except, of course, if you go all the way down the list to 20, 25 and 26, you'll get da-da-da-da, Canada and UK, of course. And so, so it's, it's obvious. But, you know, you look at the top countries. What are the worst countries? It's Mexico. Um, you know, M- Mexico is um, 62.4%. Are near the poverty rate, sixty point three percent use welfare. That's a reality. Seventy percent from Dominican and Republican use welfare. Sixty percent from El Salvador. Sixty one percent from Honduras. And you see the same thing with English proficiency rates. Only thirty one percent of Mexican immigrants speak English very well, and that's self described, by the way. Those are the ones that answer the census interview. By saying they speak what, speak English well, I mean it's certainly not going to be more than that. It could be less because it's self-identified. Um, you look further down the list: thirty-six percent of Dominican Republic, even China is not so good. Thirty-six percent, you know, they're they're the second, they're the number two sending country. It's really only India is seventy-three point four percent. I mean, the Indian immigrants do very well. Um, they do well. And of course, obviously, Canada and UK are irrelevant to when when discussing English proficiency because it's a native language. But you look at Canadian immigrants; only thirteen point eight percent are on welfare. So again, twenty six point nine percent of Americans are on welfare. Thirteen percent of Canadian immigrants are. So that's good. That's what we should be seeing. Fifteen point nine percent of Indians, but that's about it. Almost every other country on the list, the immigrants from those countries, have a tremendous welfare usage. 70% of Dominican Republic immigrants. The point is that it, they're not created equal. When you have mass migration from the third world, you get poverty. Now, notice not 100% from Dominican Republic are on welfare. Only 70%. That's a tremendous amount. 30% are not. So the point is, if you actually ended chain migration and had a merit-based system where you'd prioritize these these um, factors in a merit, you know, in, in kind of a point system, you'd get the best of the best. You say, look, every year we're going to pick, you know, not a million, 
because we do need to have a cool off just culturally. We'll pick 300,000 of the of the highest scoring applications. Done. You'll, you'll get some from the third world. And those are really talented people, particularly from those parts that they come from very impoverished countries. And they're still very productive. But you do have to accept the fact that it's going to be, you know, rather than being 90% shifted away from Western countries, it's going to go back more towards those countries. And that's fine. That's how it should be. It should be merit-based. But anyway, I just want to sew up this discussion. And again, there's a lot of information here. It's a must-read article. There's a lot of lot, lot of other details. But I want to kind of bring this back to Trump's amnesty plan. When they say, oh, we're going to get rid of chain migration, but only after we accelerate and bring in every person from the 4 million chain migration visa waiting list, th- that's more I, – I, I go through the countries. It's more of the same. It's going to kill us. The poverty, the anti-assimilation, and yes, the permanent Democrat majority. I hope to come out with a report to demonstrate on how, demonstrate just how this immigration is creating a permanent Democrat majority. And look, I must say, I mean, certainly all the ones that come from areas where they're on welfare are going to vote Democrat. But even the, the some of the few that aren't, I mean, like India, most of the Indian immigrants, they shouldn't, but they do vote Democrat. So I'm just, you know. I'm not saying we shouldn't bring them in. I'm just saying you look at everything in totality. This is helping create a permanent Democrat majority. So that's going to be my next kind of numbers report. But that, that that's immigration. So the point is Trump needs to double down and be consistent. Strike while the iron's hot, while you won the shutdown fight, while the left-wing immigration base is demoralized. Don't give them a life jacket. Be consistent. Walk away from it if that really was the strategy all along. But I'm not seeing him walking away from it. So that's immigration. Now let's move on to abortion. And this isn't so much Trump's issue. You know, look, he was pro-abortion for most of his life. I mean, who knows if he still cares that much about it. But, you know, he'd be willing to fight for it more than these clowns are. But they're not pushing him on it. So this is another issue of consistency. Where it's all for show, and they don't actually want to score points when it matters. I have an article out, we'll link to in show notes, and I'm just going to kind of briefly summarize it. Six reasons why yesterday's vote on abortion was a sham. So all of a sudden, you know, the Senate, I guess, you know, they couldn't do it last week, they didn't have time, so in honor of the march to life, they vote on Lindsey Graham's pain-capable bill, essentially banning abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy where, you know, it's roughly estimated the baby could start feeling pain and start hearing the mother's voice. Now, you know, and, and obviously, uh, you, you know, it's it just, it's astounding the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't realize in this debate that there's one thing to say you have abortion you know people think well most countries have abortion most countries are more to you know even further to the left than america so it's taken for granted that you could always have an abortion but the reality is most countries you know i'm not just saying the conservative catholic ones like poland and ireland where they obviously ban it um and then certainly some of the you know non-western countries but um you know, like countries like Mexico, where the you're not allowed to have an elective abortion, and they come here illegally to go and have abortions. We have abortion chain migration, but um, anyway, 
you look at I'm I'm just seeing which countries here. Even even Norway, Norway, and really most of these countries, Denmark, France, Germany, Austria, Greece, the standard cutoff is 12 weeks. So right now in this country, you have abortion on demand at any point. Um, and even the most liberal Western European countries have the cutoff at 12 weeks. So this this bill ban it at, you know, at 20 weeks. Now, here, here's, the, here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. Now you might say, well, that, that, that's a good thing. You know, it passed the House several months ago. So that's uh, that's taken care of. And now it passed the Senate, 51 to 46. So, so Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski join the other side. But then three phony pro-life Democrats, you know, when they know it's not going to pass, they, they'll, you know, bolster their bona fides. Senator Donnelly from Indiana, Manchin from, from West Virginia, and Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. The reality is that it didn't pass, even though it passed, because of the 60-vote threshold, this business that there's, you know, again, and I told you before, I'm all for the original concept of the filibuster, but not just making it that there's a full 60-vote threshold, even when you're not actually filibustering on every bill, no matter what, every time, every place, and there's no purpose to ever having a majority. There's got to be some middle ground. So the point is this. Republicans are willing to address the issue when they know it won't pass. So the point I made is, wait a minute. What happened to defunding Planned Parenthood? So you're going to go for the bigger thing. Let's statutorily ban abortion, and I'm all for that, when they know it's not going to pass, but then simply just not funding it in the budget bill, not funding it with private taxpayer funds, funding a private organization like Planned Parenthood, especially after the revelation of the videos. It's not even up. It's not even under discussion. Isn't that amazing how amnesty is under discussion in a budget bill, but defunding Planned Parenthood is not? So it's a joke. It's just a fundraising uh, mechanism to get conservatives to keep donating and voting for that. They have no intention of doing it. And I go through a number of other factors. The courts. That no, the courts are going wild. It's not just Roe v. Wade. Every year they're getting more radical, and I go through a number of cases where they're mandating that states fund Planned Parenthood. They're you know, blocking any sort of restriction or safety regulation, zoning regulation on abortion clinics. Any pro-life bill states are doing is blocked, and they're mainly being blocked by lower courts, although the Supreme Court is refusing to take the appeal. Again, that whole paradigm I talked about before, that if you strip the lower courts of jurisdiction, the passivity of the Supreme Court will then work in our favor. For the most part. But, you know, if you're Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, by the way, is a big judicial supremacist. So he has no intention of doing anything about the filibuster. He's a very strong proponent of keeping the status quo. Lindsey Graham in particular. He's a very strong proponent of funding Planned Parenthood in the budget. And worse, he's the one distracting from the battle because by him joining with the left on amnesty, it gives them fuel to to make the budget bill all about amnesty, and we have to expend all our ammo going on defense to ensure that amnesty doesn't get put in a budget bill rather, th- rather than going on offense and downright defunding Planned Parenthood. That's why it's not even under discussion because of Lindsey Graham. So, so don't give me this nonsense, oh, I'm going to sponsor a pain-capable bill when you know it's not going to pass. You're not doing anything about the filibuster. You're not doing anything about Planned Parenthood. You're not doing anything about the courts, even the lower courts. And then, as I note, Lindsey Graham's creating amnesty. 
that's going to turn America into California. Now, let me ask you a question. How likely is it that you're going to pass a pro-life bill in California? Well, uh, negative a million percent. You can't. Well, if he gets his way on immigration, you're going to have a permanent anti-life majority in most parts of the country. As well as if we continue the chain migration that I was talking about before. That has to be shut off immediately, not in 15 to 20 years from now. We'll be dead by then. You're going to have a permanent anti-life majority in this country. It's a very big problem. And then finally... Well, two more, two more things on this. Another thing is, if you remember, we talked about it a lot at the time. In 2015, Congress actually, here's the irony. So they won't get rid of the filibuster, but there was a time when they actually could have passed a pro-life bill without the filibuster. Basically, the D.C. municipality government passed a bunch of anti-religious liberty bills, including a bill mandating that all... Um, employers located within the district, which includes all the political organizations, the pro-life political groups, that they have to offer in their employer compensation uh, packages coverage for abortions. Now, because D.C.'s government is really a puppet of Congress, because constitutionally Congress controls the D.C. government, pursuant to the 1974 Home Rule Act, Congress within 90 days could nullify anything that the D.C. Council does. And there's a special privilege motion for doing it that you could actually, it's not subject to the filibuster. Guess what? When Ted Cruz had the resolution of disapproval, Lindsey Graham wouldn't co-sponsor it, and leadership ensured that it wouldn't even get a committee vote, much less go out to the floor. Because there, you're playing with live ammo. You're actually going to be consistent. You're actually going to pass something that could pass. No, 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 no. They're only willing to vote on pro-life bills that will not pass. They're only willing to f- fire guns with blank with blanks, not with real live ammo. Because the minute you have real live ammo in there, they don't want to pick up the gun. Because they don't actually want to kill the abortion industry. This is a perspective you're not going to hear from anywhere else. You're like, All these pro-life organizations. And one more thing, by the way. I wanted to have Steve King on, but hopefully we'll still get him on. But Steve King has the heartbeat bill. Now, look, there's one thing if the Democrats were going to be like, okay, there's enough of us that are willing to say we're pro-abortion, but 20 weeks, no, we're not going to do that. And you can get 60 votes and pass. I'm all for passing the pain capable. I'm all for doing what we can do, accomplishing what we can accomplish, um, and preventing the abortions we can prevent. But given that they know Democrats aren't, going to supply nearly enough votes to get to 60 anyway. And you're not going to do anything about it. And it's all messaging. So if it's messaging, why don't you stand on the morally clear and more scientifically clear bill, by the way, of heartbeat, which is the Steve King's bill stopping all abortions after five to seven weeks when you could hear a heartbeat. It basically requires the abortion, the physician conducting the abortion to check for a heartbeat. And if you hear a heartbeat, you cannot do that abortion straight up. See, pain capable is kind of ambiguous. It feels pain, it doesn't, you know, and I'm not denying it, I'm sure it certainly does, but the exact moment is unclear. This is actually straight shot. And it's actually, you know, better for the courts too, because they're like, well, the pain capable is more likely to pass muster with the courts. Well, look, we shouldn't be dealing with judicial supremacy anyway, but even if you want to deal with it, Steve King mentioned to me a very important point that there's more ambiguity 
the courts always go after vague statutes. They say, well, it's a vague standard. When does it feel pain? We don't exactly know. This is very simple. You hear a heartbeat, you're done. So you would force the states to the, the courts to directly say we're for abortion. We're for abortion when you have a heartbeat. Let them do it. Give us more fuel to denude the courts of their power. But guess what? As, as Steve King told me, and this is a direct quote, that Paul Ryan said to him that after originally promising to bring this up for a vote, he said, look, you have to get the holy trinity of pro-life organizations. That's Family Research Council, Susan B. Anthony List, and National Right to Life. National Right to Life, as many of you know, is like the NRA is to guns, where they're kind of like a false flag operation. They're just there to make a name for themselves. National Right to Life opposes the heartbeat bill. So you know what I mean? Putting this all together, give me a break. Stop the virtue signaling. Stop the fundraising tactics. This is a joke. And finally, we're going to get to another thing of consistency. Trump needs to be consistent on Afghanistan. And sadly, this is something we are not going to hear tonight in the State of the Union address. We're not going to hear. And that's Afghanistan. Trump's original instincts were correct. And now it's getting worse and worse. Today, gosh, the the House is voting on another long-term defense funding bill. And this was the ask of the Freedom Caucus. Rather than demanding immigration concessions, could you give us a long-term funding bill on defense? And we've said this many times. The problem with our defense, for the most part, is not a funding issue. It's a policy issue. The social engineering in the military, and what are we using our military for? If you reorient our priorities of the military to fight the battles we want them to fight, to have the surgical strikes that we need, the the in and outs that we need, and stay away from these long occupations and refereeing of, of these Islamic civil wars that only weaken us and don't involve us, you wouldn't need as much money. So indeed, they're voting on a defense bill, H.R. 695, to appropriate more than $659 billion for defense, bust the budget caps, and like I told you, this is going to give open the gate for busting the non-defense caps too. It designates $584 billion in regular defense, that's base defense, and $75.1 billion in overseas contingency operations or war accounts. $75 billion. As you guys well know, there's something called SIGAR, the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. They've been bipartisan, nonpartisan, I mean, through different administrations being a good watchdog at what we're doing in Afghanistan. They've noted that they're ignoring the fact that the Afghani military is corrupt, inept, a bunch of pedophiles, as we talked about last time. We, we broached this issue. Um, wasted money. There's no outcome. Now they have a, a new report on how the Taliban are making gains. And Mattis is, 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 for the first time, asking them not to release reports. See, previously they had classified reports that they wanted to declassify. And the Pentagon says, no, 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 don't do it. Here, this is a report that's totally unclassified, and they're demanding that they don't release it. The Independent Inspector General. Showing that the Taliban are making greater gains. And again, the Taliban are no different from the regular Afghani people. They're a reflection of the people, sadly. There's nothing we can do about it. They don't threaten us outside of Afghanistan like other NGOs or, or you know, terror governments. Iran, Al-Qaeda, they're just... You know, obviously, hey, you know, they, they 
hate America. And, you know, if Al Qaeda wants to set up shop there, they'll allow them there. You know, if you see a training camp there, blow it up. I'm all for that. But it's this endless occupation as if we, we're on the hook for Afghanistan. We're putting it back together. There's nothing to put together. We're putting in more than ever. They're ramping up a surge, putting more lives at stake. More of our guys are getting killed. More money is being spent. It's the linchpin to our budget because because without it, we wouldn't need more defense spending. We'd be able to you know focus on base defense. Here we need it for the OCO. And once we need it, Democrats are saying, well, if you want that, you know, you have to have more non-defense spending when really this is a bipartisan opportunity where even a lot of Democrats are like, let's just get rid of this. Trump should... Trump's intuition was right. He should be consistent on this. Don't listen to Madison Tillerson and the generals. The same generals reduced to rubble that he spoke about before he was elected. I challenge anyone to tell me what land we are holding on behalf of whom in what sort of sustainable way and to what end to what national security interest. After 15 years, going on 16 years now, really our 17th year, actually. What are we doing there? This is not headed in a good place, and, and we're going to be writing a lot more about it. You know, I'm a, I had another thing. I wanted to get to ethanol destroying oil refineries, largest oil refinery on the East Coast shutting down. But, you know, we'll, we'll get to that when we finally get Ted Cruz on the show. He's working on that issue. There's a lot more, but the bottom line is we need a consistent narrative, both from the GOP Congress and from the president. Sadly, I don't expect to get that. Look for CRTV's commentary tonight. We're going to have a live broadcast. I, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make the broadcast, but um, we're going to have it, I believe, from 7.30 to 11 tonight, full coverage. Um don't don't turn on the garbage. I mean, at least turn on C-SPAN if you're you know gonna go elsewhere. But if not, go to CRTV. Don't listen to the talking heads. And um, we're gonna have our reaction to you know what we usually do, calling the balls and strikes from a conservative perspective. You know what fulfills the promise, what doesn't, what's just nice sounding but all talk, no action. We're gonna have it full roundup on the other side of this. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.